So, but here's a way, here's a way that you can score brownie points with me, not that it matters or anything, but I'm gonna ask a question. So who out there is a wrestling fan? Raise your hand. Oh, we got a couple of us out here. Okay, my man, thank you for raising your hand so high, man. Give him a round of applause. (laughs) So notice it's all the three kids in here who (laughs) who are wrestling fans, but anybody who's ever been a fan of wrestling at any point in your life, um, you know that in order to keep a character fresh, what you have to do is drastically reinvent that character in a number of different ways. Like, for example, let's say when I was growing up, man, I had two really my personal favorite wrestlers that are a little bit you know, older than your generation, buddy. But mine was Sting and The Rock. So those are my two favorite wrestlers of all time. So you can imagine me as a little kid, which my wife and my kids argue that I still am, you know, as far as my immaturity is concerned. But my favorite wrestlers, when they wanted to reinvent their characters, they had to do something drastic and they turned them into bad guys. Like, I was hurt when they did that, but now me being a 37-year-old man, I actually prefer the bad guys because I could be a little bit of a troll, you know? But, um, so basically when he took a good character and then you turned him into a bad guy, that's, that's what was known as what's called a heel turn. So a heel because that, in wrestling, a, a bad guy is known as a heel and of course that spread just not from wrestling, but also into popular culture as well. So whenever somebody goes from being this beloved character and in turn changing to something else, that's what's called a heel turn. But then you have the converse, the inverse of that is uh, when when a bad guy becomes a good guy. That's called a face turn because in wrestling, a good guy is known as a face. Now, I know some of you are wondering like, man, I came here to hear about Jesus, not about The Rock, you know, not about Sting and everything, but I promise it has relevance into what we're going into today because some people would posit that this God that we worship, that he actually did a face turn. He did a face turn because in the Old Testament, some of the things that he commanded, his character, you know, some of the, you know, the atrocities that happened there don't seem very loving. It seems rather judgmental. And it seems like that would come from somebody who was indeed evil. But in the New Testament where we see God, he's loving, he's merciful, he's compassionate, so on and so forth. Anybody ever heard that argument before? Yeah, anybody ever read the pages of the Bible and be like, some of the things you read in the Old Testament, you're like, yeesh. (laughs) That's a bit drastic. (laughs) So with that being said, so my name is Fred Gallup. I'm one of the pastors here at Element. I just consider it an honor to spend my last Sunday preaching here in Wyoming with y'all. Like, there's no greater church here in Wyoming that I'd rather spend this last Sunday with. And um, whether you're joining us here in the auditorium or online somewhere, we just want to say thank you so much for humoring us and spending your time listening to us as we tackle a number of different passages in the scripture here. So as a bit of an overview Over the past three weeks, you know, start with Pastor Jeff and then I preached last week and then today and going forward next few weeks, we we have been and we are dealing with an apologetic series. Apologetic is just a fancy word meaning to give a defense based on reason and logic for the Christian faith. So we're going through an apologetic series and we're dealing with a number of difficult topics in the Bible. And this week, we're going to be dealing with the tension that exists between what we, how we see the Old Testament God 
and how we see the New Testament God, because it's just a precursory glance alone, just as an initial glance. It seems to be two radically different people or that God changed his mind and how he responded to his creation known as humanity. So because today's topic is so expansive, we talk about the God of the Old Testament. There is in no way, shape and form that I could possibly begin to cover every single objection that we find that people have regarding the Old Testament, because every single objection deserves its own series in itself. Like you have things in there like slavery, y'all. Like, I mean, like really ugly things that humanity has done that deserve its own thing. So we know that there are a number of big rocks that we can't possibly tackle them all. But what we hope to do today is to give you a lens to view all of these difficult Old Testament things through. And again, like we talked about last week, it's perfectly okay to ask questions because nowhere in the Bible does it say you cannot question God. Nowhere. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you can't have doubts because God created you. He knows the number of hairs on your head. Some of you is like, you don't have any. So so it's real easy for God to count those. But God knows you inside and out. It's okay to struggle with doubts. Use those doubts to glorify God, though. So what am I saying when I say that? Come to God reverently, giving him your questions. Seek other ministers. Seek other believers. So many resources that are out there because those doubts can actually be the very things that strengthen your faith. So go to God reverently rather than irreverently. So our big question for today, our big question for today is, did God change from the Old Testament to the New Testament? Did God change? change? It's an important question. So forewarning, forewarning, we're going to be dealing with a really difficult passage of scripture. And if I could be completely transparent with y'all, so I've been walking with the Lord in my own. I was raised in the faith, but I was, I've been walking with the Lord since 2008. And in 2010, I became, I was licensed and ordained into the ministry. So I've been preaching for a decade, but from the very infancy stages of my faith until many years after that, This is one of those passages that was a thorn in my side. I was just like, God, how in the world can we begin to reconcile this with who you are? This doesn't seem right. Anybody got passages like that? We just like, man, how do I deal with this? This is ugly, Lord. So this is what I have found. And I hope that what I have found is a blessing to you so that you can look through the scriptures the same way to see this God of love that we worship. But in order to properly communicate that, it's three things that I'm going to be giving you today. So the first one is that of the problem, the problem, the problem. So next is a framework in how to view these difficult passages from the Old Testament, even some in the New Testament as well. It's a framework about how to view it. Use this framework whenever you're looking through the scriptures. And then lastly, we're going to use God's solution. We're going to be looking at God's solution to all things regarding humanity. God's solution. So first things first, a problem. So again, that passage I was telling you all about, the one that was just so rough for me. Oh, my gosh. It comes from 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. So notice this. 
The scripture says, one day Samuel, a prophet, said to Saul, who was Israel's first king, it was who? It was Yahweh. It was the Lord. Yahweh, who told me to anoint you as king of his people, Israel. Now, listen to this message from who? From Yahweh, the Lord. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, Yahweh Sabaoth, has declared. I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek. So if I can give this to you in hood terms, God is saying, Amalek, it's time for you to run me my fade, homie. It's time for you to run me my fade. I've decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. Now go out and completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation, completely destroy them all. Men, women, children, babies, cattle, goats, camel, donkeys, dog, cats, ferrets, hamsters, fish, parakeet, everything else. Wipe them all out. Genocide. Ew, 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 ew. So for context today, context, the question we have to ask is, for the purpose of our discussion today, how can God command the slaughter of innocence? Yeesh. Some of you are like, how are you going to deal with this one, brother? <laughs> so if you know anything about me, you know that I am a stickler for context. Why is that? Because context determines meaning. Context determines meaning. If we don't have an accurate context of why something was written, especially difficult things like this, then we could walk away with any sort of nonsensical interpretation that we want to walk away with. And we could miss what God is actually trying to communicate in his word. And that is done so you can just simply go on the Internet and ask Dr. Google and you'll see certain websites that pop up like evilbible.com and like a bunch of other anti-Christian, anti-Bible websites sites that will cite things like this passage and say, you serve a misogynistic, um, anti-humanity, you know, genocidal sort of God. How could that be a God of love, huh, Christian? Like, these are things that we actually got to wrestle through because we can't just ignore that these things exist. So, so when we come to difficult passages like this, we have to ask the question, why in the world did our loving God command such a brutal response to an entire group of people? Yeesh, because this is rough. So one thing we have to start with, we have to start with this understanding, is that God is just. When I say God is just, I mean that God will always, 100% of the time, do what is right, even if we don't understand it. God is so just that he himself defines what justice is. And then because of this, there must be a drastic reason why God commanded the slaughter of children and babies. That's the part that's really hard in the end. Cute little fluffy Facebook picture, Instagram picture, animals and everything like that. The little kittens and the dogs and the bows and everything like that. So usually we talk about the slaughter of men. You're like, oh, whatever. 
whatever. But we talk about like these innocent, precious creatures. Like, oh my gosh, how can? And I get it. I get it. I'm also aware that no matter how well we explain this today, no matter how well we explain this, some folks are still going to have questions and objections. And that's a good thing. Use your questions to go seek God even more. Acts chapter 17, verse 11, it talks about the Berean mentality that says that they were very noble minded because they heard the words that the preacher said. And they went back to study the scriptures daily to see if what the preacher said was even true. So don't just take my word for this. Go back and read the Bible for yourself to see if it's actually true. Challenge me. Challenge me. So. Allow these doubts, allow these frustrations to mold you as you continuously seek after the face of God. But always remember to have a reverent heart for God. So a little bit of a background here. So here we have Israel's first king, King Saul, Shaul. Here we have Israel's first king. And then we have the, the uh, we have we have the prophet Samuel. He was giving a message to the king by God that says to wipe out an entire group of people, literally everything about them, decimate them, get rid of their memory from the earth. But in order to get a good grasp of why God commanded such a heinous action, we have to look back into the earlier books of the Bible from a section of the Bible called the Torah or the Pentateuch or the first five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Because here in the book of Exodus, chapter 17, verses 8 through 16, it recounts how Israel was in their infancy stages as the newly redeemed people who had just been released from the bondage of Israel. Of Egypt, also known in the Bible as Mitzrayim, which literally means bondage. They were released from 400 years of captivity. And as they were going out into the desert wanderings on their way to the promised land, this group of people, while they were they were they were just hungry, they were tired. And if any of you have toddlers, you know exactly how long car rides are. You know how it is. It's brutal. They're hungry, they're tired, they're sleepy, are we there yet? So imagine five million newly redeemed, quote unquote, spiritual toddlers going throughout when they're, they're hungry, destitute, so on and so forth. This is, what, this is when Israel was experiencing the many wonders of God in their desert wanderings. But, but in their travels, the Bible declares in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 through 18, that there was this dude and a group of people, a dude named Amalek, and this dude and this group of people named the Amalekites, they swooped down on them unmercifully as soon as they got redeemed and they're just trying to find their groove and everything and they're tired. And then what did he do? What did they do when they attacked this group of people? They attacked them from the rear. So when they attacked them from the rear, this means that they took out the old folks, the kids, the babies, the animals, everyone that was traveling. That was the, they didn't know military strategy yet. They didn't know surround the most precious ones yet. So they're in their infancy stages. Amalek came and he struck them from behind and he killed so many that Israel was already God's chosen people. But he took out the hearts of God's chosen people 
unmercifully. And for this reason, God said in Deuteronomy chapter 25 and Exodus chapter 17 that he would never forget what the Amalekites did to his people. He would never forget it. Now, think of it this way for a little bit more context, a little bit more context. Think of it this way. There was no such thing as a police force back then. No such thing. There was nobody to call when someone was assaulting you. Now, anybody in here who's a parent or a significant other or, or in a marriage or you know, just people, period. If you have loved ones, what would you not do to protect the people that you love? What would you not do? I know for me and mine, I got a wife, three kids, and an annoying little dog, 12 pounds of pure mayhem. If people were coming after them, and the only way for me to stop them was take this 205-pound muscular chocolate frame and descend upon them and put them in the grave, then I will preach your eulogy. I will preach your eulogy. But I'm doing what I have to do in order to protect mine. And this is exactly what was taking place because Israel's job at this point was to survive. And by this point, a little bit more context, 400 years, 360 years to be exact, had passed since their first time that Amalek descended upon them until Israel's first king. So what does that mean? For almost 400 years, the people of Amalek continued to oppress and, and attack the Israelites. They were a consistent thorn in their side. So God said, you know what? I'm sick of these people. I'm sick of it. S-I-C-C-U-D. Sick of it. I'm sick of it. So now, Israel, wipe them out. The Hebrew term, yamach shemo, means to wipe them out and completely blot their names out from under heaven. I am sick of what they're doing to you, so take them out. So what should we deduce from this? This is a lot to take in. This is a lot to take in. So what should we deduce of this? Because you have a lot of people who are going around saying God gave them divine messages in order to wipe out to the whole people, even still to this very day. If God commanded it then, is he still doing the same thing today? Is that what's, you know, like a lot of these uh, terrorist groups and everything like that and these lone wolves and so on and so forth said they got a message from God to do this? What if somebody came in here to Element and says, you know what? God gave me a message to wipe out everybody in here and go and take out the nursery. That's rough because this is what he did right here. This is what he did. So is that a legitimate thing now? To answer that question, the answer is a resounding no. And I know that seems like the easy answer, but this here was an extreme example that you don't see. Very, as much as people try to say in the Old Testament, the judgments that actually fell are few and far between if you look at it in context. God did a lot of warning, decades of warning, hundreds of years of warning that says you're not going to listen. Now the bottom's got to fall out on you. That's, that's what happened. So this was an extreme example of judgment on an entire nation for 400 years of decadence, y'all. So here's the thing to take away from this. You and I, we get to choose our actions. We get to choose what we want to do. But what we don't get to choose is the reaction. 
We get to choose what we do, but we don't get to choose the response to what we do. So how do we avoid negative responses? Very simply, fear God and keep his commandments. It's just that simple. Don't go around doing negative things. Follow God and keep his commandments. So what this situation also informs us is that if you are called by God, he works everything out for your good, even if you don't understand it. You will see people get taken down in front of you in whatever context is needed so that you can be placed in a situation where you can glorify God. That's the heritage that we have as God's chosen people. So if people are coming up against you, tell them, be careful about being your enemy because God, because you are on God's side and God will work together for your good, y'all. But what this doesn't mean is that we get to just throw hands whenever we want to. (laughs) I don't get to pass out these hand sandwiches whenever I want to because people are treating me wrong. Because remember, we're in two different contexts. Israel was trying to survive in a savage time. You and I are not only surviving, but as Americans, as quiet as it's kept, we thriving. And our job is to spread the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 2, I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says that God is not slow concerning his promises regarding judgment. He says he is waiting for people to come to repentance. Just think of it this way. You, as a person called by God, can be the very instrument that God uses to soften someone's heart, to bring them to salvation. When they're acting nasty towards you, you could be the person that God is operating through to show them his divine love. That's the difference between Israel's situation and ours is that they were following commands in a savage time and we are following the commands to love one another as Jesus commanded us to love. And I know that some are still struggling with this concept, but let's take it a step further as I offer you my my second main point, a framework, a framework, because we talked about the problem. But now we got to talk about the framework about how to view these Old Testament passages such as this one. So from our very narrow and myopic viewpoint, we may struggle with some of God's commands. Who's ever struggled with some things you read in the Bible? I mean, I put, if I could lift up both my feet, I would, y'all. We may struggle with that. I mean, although we struggle, I need you to accept this biblical fact. God is always in every circumstance working towards the redemption of his people and the redemption of his creation. Every single circumstance that you see in the Old Testament and even till today where we're still living in the New Testament, God is ultimately working through uh, the situations to redeem his people. This world is saturated with sin and in God's righteous response to sin is judgment. Make no mistake about it. God's response to sin is judgment, but he extends grace. And this grace oftentimes does not look like grace at first glance. So sometimes God has to act radically, even violently, in order to bring about a good result. Let me give you a specific example. Let's say that there was a situation where you go into a doctor for a routine checkup and the doctor sees like a spot. And then it turns out that spot was cancerous. And then 
what happens is that there is a violent action that has to take place in order to get that cancer out. You have to cut into the body where there's bloodshed. You have to remove elements from the body. And then you do more damage to poke into the skin to, uh, to join the skin together again so that it can heal efficiently. Think of that, that specific situation, how the doctors cut out the cancer in order to maintain the person. Think of it that way when God is cutting out this entire decadent nation for the preservation of his people and his creation. God, well, th- this, this, this judgment is an act of mercy that God is doing towards the creation that he's redeeming. So now let me introduce you to something. This something is called the moral argument for God's existence. The moral argument, and Pastor Jeff, he talked about it a couple weeks ago, but the moral argument basically posits this, is that you and I, we objectively know what evil is. We know what evil is. And why do we know what evil is? Because we know what good is. Why do we know what good is? It's because there is a such thing as a moral law that is given to all cultures for all time. And if there is a moral law, then there has to be a moral lawgiver. This argument points back to our knowing what evil is based on good. It points back to being God who determines what good is. There must be an objective sense of good to judge evil by. So allow me to show you a video from the late great Dr. Ravi Zacharias as he himself talks about this moral argument. Another student in Europe asked, how does it necessarily follow that if you have a moral law, this necessitates that you had a moral lawgiver? It's a great question. And actually, I pondered about that for a long time, John. You know, I said, where do I, how do you find this link between a moral law and a moral lawgiver? And it all came about with the problem of evil being raised. When you raise the problem of evil, you assume there's good. When you assume there's good, you assume there's a moral law. You assume there's a moral law. You have to posit a moral lawgiver. But the question is why? And here's the answer to that. Because anyone who raises the question on the problem of evil, it's either raised by a person or about a person, which means the problem of evil, when it is posited, assumes the intrinsic worth of personhood. If there's no intrinsic worth to personhood, the question actually self-destructs. So personhood is necessary for the question to be valid. That's why we can only justify it if the person is the creation of an individual of indistinct worth, which is God himself. That's why we move to a moral lawgiver. The question self-destructs if personhood is not valuable. It's a very critical jump, but it's very important. And whenever I've talked to skeptics or whatever in this, it gives them pause. They say, well, you know, yeah, yeah. And then they try to divert and move off in other directions. Your life and my life assume intrinsic worth for the problem of evil as a question to be valid. And that intrinsic worth can only come if we are the creation of God himself, not the random product of time plus matter plus chance. So based on this brilliant rhetoric by Dr. Ravi Zacharias, we have to posit that God is only 
Good, y'all. So growing up in the black church, we had this statement when we would greet each other sometimes. So that statement was, God is good. Good right now. And all the time, give yourselves a round of applause. Because that means either you've been to a black church before or you know black people. (laughs) All 12 of us here in Wyoming. (laughs) But one of the ways God's goodness is shown is through redemption and restoration. So how in the world does all this that we just said apply back to this narrative and other hardcore narratives in, in, in the Old Testament? Well, starting way back in the book of Genesis, God chose this dude by nothing that he did that was special named Abraham. And he said, I promise that through you, all nations of the world are going to be blessed. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your descendants. And ultimately, this ultimate blessing is going to come down through your seed. And his name is Jesus Christ. So if anything was threatening their existence, then for the sake of all people of all time forever, God had to step in to defend his people because of his covenant, meaning a divine relationship between God and man, his covenant relationship with Abraham, he kept his promises. And that's why for you and I, we can trust in God's promises because the scripture says that every one of his promises are indeed yes and amen. So if God has ever promised you something, it will take place no matter how bad the situation looks. You can rest in God's promises. So with that, it's not that Israel was inherently special. There was nothing about them that was special. It's that God chose them to bring us Jesus. He did this for his own glory and the salvation of his people. And God was willing to do whatever was necessary, including the horrors of what we just read in order to bring us this Christ. So listen, listen, I know we talk about the children and the babies and so on and so forth. Had is, I'm sorry, had the Amalekites continued to live and thrive on, they would have always been a thorn in Israel's side forever, forever. An example of such because God commanded Saul to do this, but Saul partially obeyed God's command, partially obeyed it, and he left some of them alive. And God fired Saul. But yet Saul, at the end of his life, was killed by an Amalekite because he disobeyed God's command. Not only was he killed, but all three of his sons were killed by an Amalekite. All three of his sons. To take it a step further, there was this guy later on in the Bible, in the book of Esther, there was this guy named Haman the Agathite. He was a descendant of the Amalekites, and he had an ear with the Persian king during the time of the Persian captiv- captivity of Israel and Judah. And then what he tried to do because of what happened in the past is that he tried to wipe out all of Israel, but it was through a woman. So shout out to the women, y'all. Shout out to the women because what the Bible teaches us from Genesis chapter one is that man and woman were created equally and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and rule over my creation. So in no way, shape and form is woman less than man in any way, but she is equal to him as a fellow image image bearer of God. 
So God utilized this opportunity to say, I'm about to do something unorthodox. And through a woman, I'm going to save the entirety of my people because I love them. I saw what a man did back in the day and it brought calamity upon y'all. So now I have to step in through her as I'm working behind the scenes in order to bring about this national salvation for my people. So listen, y'all, listen, every time you see a difficult passage in the Old Testament such as this, I want you to think of it this way, that God is doing what is necessary for the complete and total redemption of his people and keeping the, the schema of redemption and glorification possible for you and I every single time, even when it doesn't look like it. See, listen, you and I, with our finite, puny six pounds of gray matter between our ears, we're way down here, y'all. And God is infinitely up here in his understanding because he created all things. So what we should do is look at these passages and say, God, you obviously know what's best. And as you take and you follow that scarlet thread that goes from the narrative all the way to the end of the story, you will indeed see how it all worked together for the good of God's people every single time. So lastly, Now I'm going to offer you a solution to this dilemma. We talked about the problem. We talked about a framework. So now I got to offer you a solution. So I'm going to introduce something to you. It's going to challenge your theology. It's going to challenge your theology. We talk about the God of the Old Testament being nasty and mean, the God of the New Testament being nice and forgiving. What if I told you that the greatest act of God's grace and mercy towards humanity actually happened during the Old Testament? What if I told you that? And in order to prove that to you, I'm going to utilize an Old Testament scripture to prove it. What's that Old Testament scripture you may be asking? John chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. It says, for God so loved the world, (laughs) he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And I already know what some of y'all are thinking. You Bible nerds and scholars out there are saying, boo, that's New Testament. You suck, preacher. <laughs> boo this man. Boo. He has no idea what he's talking about. He quoted a New Testament scripture talking about his Old Testament. Slow down. Hear me out. Hear me out. So it is true. I'll give you this. It is true that the book of John is the fourth of the New Testament books of the Bible. All four of the Gospels of Jesus Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they are the first four books of the New Testament. Notice I said books of the New Testament. Let's look at something a little bit more closely. Hebrews chapter nine, verse 22, the second half of that verse, Hebrews 9, 22 B, it says, For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And some translations say there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. I know some of you are still scratching your head. Let's take another look at something. Matthew chapter 26, verse 28. I love the way other translations say it. It says, for this cup 
This cup that Jesus was holding at the last supper that we call it, or at his last Passover Seder with his disciples. He says, after they had finished eating the bread, they were now about to drink from the cup, the cup of wine. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant in my blood. Or this one says, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice for many. So can you now see it? While the Gospels are the first books housed in the New Testament, so New Testament, New Covenant is the exact same thing. Covenant and Testament is the same word, which is an agreement between God and man. The New Testament or the New Covenant did not actually happen until Christ shed his blood on that cross. So what does this mean? The entirety of Jesus's life was spent during the Old Testament, the entirety of it. So when we're talking about, when we're talking about the healings, the moral lessons, the raising people from the dead, the opening of blind eyes, the forgiving people of their sins, the feeding of the hungry, everything, all of that happened during the Old Testament. All of it. Everything that Jesus ever did apart from the cross was during the Old Testament, y'all. So to go back to the original question, the big question that we asked, has God changed? The answer is a resounding no, because everything that you love about Jesus, the love, the mercy, the compassion, the grace, the forgiveness, the sacrifice, yet the justice, yet, the, yet, yet holding people to God's standard, all of that is a perfect picture of God in human form since Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. Everything that Jesus did, he did as God. The same God that created all things. The same God that sent the flood to destroy all of humanity. The same God who, who judged the Amalekites and commanded for genocide of this group of people is the same God who recognized that you were powerless to save yourself. The Bible says in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, it says this, talking to the descendants of Israel, it talks about, he says, listen, Jacob, all the sins that you did, it is because of my mercies that you were not consumed because I do not change. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, it says this, it says, for Jesus Christ, is the same yesterday because he's always existed today and forevermore we can absolutely posit that in this difficult passage of scripture that god was the same then as he is now as he will continue to be for all eternity because he does not change and if you ever do a character study on the Amalekites, you will see that they were a particularly nasty group of people who did particularly nasty things, not only to their own people, but to everyone else. So you will look back and say, this group of people for 400 years, oh yeah, they earned it. They earned it. But what is easy to do is look at the Amalekites and say, they deserve it. It's easy to do that. It's easy to look across at other people and say, 
oh, they deserve God's judgment. But when we, when we hold up the lens of Scripture, we hold it up as a mirror to ourselves, and we see all the different ways we fail God's expectations, then it doesn't become about them anymore. It becomes about me. I, Fred, I am the Amalekite. I am the Jebusite. I am the Amorite. I am the Hittite. I am the enemy of God. Jesus, I am your enemy, Lord. But God, your word says that even while we were enemies, Christ, he died for us. We all deserve judgment, y'all. We all of us do, every single one of us. But God said, because I love you, I'm going to send my son to die in your place. And when he died on that cross, he didn't just die for you. He died as you and took on the fullness of my wrath. And he died and was dead for three days. And when he resurrected, he rose with all power in his hands. <laughs> Glory be to God. And he says, if you would just simply believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that I raised my son from the dead, then you too will be saved from your sins. So before I pray us out, y'all, I need us to really reflect on that reality. And I need to formally say goodbye to Element Church. Formally. Many of you know our, uh, our testimony coming here is that coming here from Germany, being overseas for 12 years, we were terrified to come to Wyoming. Terrified. But here, what we found was true community. Community that transcends ethnic, racial, political barriers. When Jesus Christ, he says, if I be lifted up, talking about on that tree, I will draw all people to me. And the closer that we get to Christ, the closer we get to one another. So here in the church that the Lord has graciously provided us, we see what true unity in humanity looks like that transcends every other physical <laughs> or even mental barrier, y'all. So not just as the black dude that's on staff, <laughs> <laughs> or the black family that's at Element. <laughs> we want to thank you as fellow co-laborers in this faith. I speak on behalf of my entire family that y'all have been a respite, a place where God has truly caused us to grow and learn how to serve in context that were, that's not our own. And the things that we learned here we're going to take with us, we're going to cherish this place as a launching pad for what God has done in our lives. And we just thank God for the opportunity to be pulled out of our comfort zone and come to a church where people wear cowboy hats <laughs> instead of Jordans in three-piece suits. So Element, on behalf of the Gallup family, we love you. From the bottom of my hearts, we actually, we, we, we love you and continue to serve in this ministry the way God always designed for you to do so. So Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus, God. This is our first time believing your gospel message. 
We just want to say thank you because your word says if we place our faith in Jesus, then we shall not be put to shame. So, God, if we're struggling in any other way of our area of our lives, God, we thank you that like a loving father that you are, you will walk with us. And even though we don't understand what we're going through, we know that you will bring us to the expected end. And we pray that we stay faithful in that. So, Element, my final departing words to you is the ironic benediction, which says, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his beautiful face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his everlasting shalom, which is peace and spiritual prosperity. So we pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And Father, we give glory to you for these things. And we thank you that you will keep us. We bless you and we give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Element, I love you. My family loves you. And we thank you for these past two years of faithful service that y'all have offered us. If you need prayer for any reason, there are folks all around the auditorium who will be happy to pray with you. Element, go in peace and God bless you. Amen.